insist that he would, at the Passover meal with his disciples, take bread, thank his father for it, and then he would break it. He would share it with them and say, take and eat, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. After the meal, he would take the cup, he would give thanks to his father in heaven, and he would share it with his disciples and say, take and drink, this cup is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and the sins of the whole world. And then, the prayer of consecration. We pray, Heavenly Father, you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon this ordinary bread and ordinary juice and make them become for us outward and physical signs of your inward and spiritual grace at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Then comes the prayer of confession. Let's join in that prayer together. Heavenly Father, you create us in your image. Through Jesus Christ, you redeem us, and through your Holy Spirit, you make us new. There are broken places in our lives, and we need your grace. Forgive us for our sins, the things we have done and left undone. By your power, heal us, our relationships with you and one another. Give us the joy, love, and hope to join you in the renewal of all things through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Corporate and communal confession as a community is important. It's critically important. It's habit-forming. It is part of what the church has done for decades upon decades. But it does not replace the necessity of personal introspection and repentance. Everybody saying together that, God, we are a sinful people and we ask for your forgiveness is critically important. But it's not meant to take the place of each person holding up like a mirror to their soul the power of the Holy Spirit to say, God, examine and search my heart, as the psalmist says, and help me to see the ways that I have fallen short. Today, before we come to God's table, we're going to pause. After that communal prayer of confession, to study just a little bit about what Jesus says about personal introspection and reflection upon the nature of sin. On the north shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, you can stand on a rolling green and grassy hill. You can look south over the water. To the right, you can see the Valley of the Doves, also called the Canyon of the Doves. It creates almost a wind tunnel effect. As the storms from the Mediterranean Sea begin to sweep across the plain, the winds funnel into that canyon and for, form almost a, a funnel effect of, of bursting wind out upon the water. That's the reason why Jesus and his disciples are often suddenly caught in storms on the Sea of Galilee. We don't believe this is a stormy day, though. Jesus, in that beautiful setting, has gathered around him all of the people who are interested in listening and learning from the teaching of this new rabbi, and Jesus gives the sermon of his life. It's early in his ministry, but it is the backbone of the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. It begins by those high and somewhat reflective phrases like, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. And after Jesus lays out those kind of jarring and difficult passages, <laughs> speaking, <laughs> speaking of 
Speaking of personal sin. Uh, it's okay, Blake. It's okay. <laughs> Jesus pauses away from the theoretical, philosophical, and gets really concrete. And what Jackson read for us is some of Jesus' most direct teaching about anger and lust. Earlier this week, as I was sharing my, my sermon text with the staff members who sometimes build different elements of ministry around that, I shared it with Jonathan, and he looked at it for a second, and he's like, are you serious? I've got to teach kids worship about anger and about lust? It's like, yes, you do. And we're evaluating you on that teaching. Jesus says, you have heard it said before from the Old Testament Mosaic law that you shouldn't kill. But then Jesus turns it inward. Listen to what he says. You've heard it said that there, to those who live long ago, don't commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. If they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. That's a stark warning, kind of a shot across the bow. And it's important to recognize here that Jesus isn't saying every time we get, feel anger well up inside of us, that all of a sudden we're going to be condemned to eternal hell. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. On the first hand, because of the word that he uses here for anger. There are two words in the Greek that can be used for anger. The first is thumos, and it's that impulsive anger that flashes up and disappears. It was when you were pulling into the parking lot this morning, and that brother or sister in Christ, that beloved child of God, stole your parking spot, <laughs> and you felt within you like, oh, that idiot. Or when someone steps on your toe and there's just a flash of reactivity. But within just a few seconds, it dissipates, we return to our calm, take a deep breath, and it's behind us. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. Jesus uses on the prefix of the word a Greek word, orge, meaning a long-lived anger of brooding resentment. You know the difference between thumos and orge in your own life? There's a big difference between feeling and impulsive reactivity versus something deep-seated that seems to just turn and churn in us. And when we see that person walk into the room, we avoid eye contact with them. When we see their profile pop up on social media, we scroll past. It's the feeling you get when that person who has probably legitimately wronged you, that feeling you get when you are disgusted by the thought of them. Jesus says, of course it's wrong to commit murder. But what I want you to understand is that the problem of murder is not where it starts. It starts in the tiny folds of feelings that you allow to begin to grow. It doesn't stop there. Because he then talks about when we call names, as I was taught to not do as a child, and I teach my children not to do now. Jesus says, don't call people an idiot, and don't call them... A fool. Now the word that he uses for fool here is raka, spelled R-A-C-A, but you can't really say it raka because any of the Semitic languages which are very embodied, very visceral, and spoken from the back of the throat, you have to say with a ka from the back of the throat. So we're going to practice together saying raka because it's fun to say as long as you're not facing someone else because you're going to shower them and you don't want to do that or they will turn around and call you an idiot. So... On the count of three, one, two, three, rakha. Very good. 
an expression of contempt, naming someone as empty-headed. I like the fact that it comes deep from within the throat in the pronunciation because it's almost as though there is an inward bitterness and the word itself is simply the sound of that which lives on the inside in us when we think about that person. Racha. We all know how difficult anger can be to deal with in our own lives, but are we constantly aware of its destructive capacity at the moment it begins to present itself as orge, a gazing, deep-seated resentment towards someone with whom we're angry. When I was a child, I remember getting in as a family, all seven of us, me, my parents, my older brother, my younger brother, and my two younger sisters, getting in the 1987 Pontiac Parisian station wagon. It was a seven-seater, one of the few seven-seaters on the market. And if you wanted to live in true luxury, you had a 1987 Pontiac Parisian station wagon. It was one of those that had the three rows of seats. You had the front seat and then the back bench seat. And in the very back was almost like a bench seat, but it was turned around backwards. So you were facing kind of like traffic coming this way. And that's where I was seated in this particular event with my younger brother, who was four years my minor. We got to bickering about something. And we went through the stages of, y'all cut it out back there, to my father realizing he couldn't reach while he's driving to kind of swat at us with corporal punishment, to the thinly veiled threat, I so help me young man, I will turn this car around or I will pull this car over. All the way to my mother's point of exasperation where she started to bring out the spiritual fear. And so in a moment when I was frustrated with my younger brother and called him a fool, you fool, my mother, who had had enough, turned around and decided to invoke the Almighty. Nathan, did you know that Jesus says if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of hell? Now that got my attention. <laughs> Better than all the other thinly veiled threats up to that point. And man, I, no more will I call my younger brother a fool. We made our way from South Georgia to this family reunion we were traveling on the way to when this event happened. And while we're there with my mother's extended family, and she's, you know, like a mother hen trying to corral all of her children, we drink some sugary drinks at the luncheon, and we're getting crazy and beginning to act up. And I remember at one point, she grabs my arm, I'm maybe nine years old, grabs my arm and says, if you don't quit acting the fool. <laughs> and I don't think I said it because I knew better, but I wanted to say under my breath, who's going to hell now, mama? <laughs> I don't think Jesus is talking about eternal damnation because we call somebody a fool. And the reason I don't think that that's what he's referring to is because that's not what he says. There are three Greek words for hell. There are Hades and Sheol, which refer to kind of this shadowy realm of existence after we die. But Jesus here uses a different word. He uses the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was not an otherworldly spiritual destination. Gehenna was a geographical location in Israel. If you travel to Israel, you can still visit through the Valley of Hinnom. In this map of Old Testament or New Testament Jerusalem, you can see Jerusalem kind of outlined, the city outlined there in the brown. And there along the right side of that image is the Kidron Valley. It's a geographical depression where there's a small creek in between the city and the Mount of Olives. But there on the bottom part of the picture where the red arrow is indicating is another shadowy kind of carving out of a depression in the land, and that's the Valley of Hinnom, from which they got the word Gehenna. 
And what it was in the first century was simply the landfill. It's where all the people who lived around Jerusalem in Israel's capital city, when they had a broken piece of furniture, you take it, push it off the cliff, and let it tumble down to the Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. If you had an animal that died, you would take the carcass and you would dump it down over into the landfill. All of the refuse and trash went there into the valley of Hinnom. And they actually paid sanitation workers like we do in the 21st century to go and keep fires burning to minimize the amount of, of rubbish and also to quell what they knew could be problematic, which was the diseased carcasses of animals. And what Jesus seems to be saying here is this. Look, we all know it's wrong to murder. But if you're allowing yourself to live with a deep-seated resentment towards somebody else, think about it in your own life. You are a smoldering pile of garbage on the inside. And there's nothing good that comes of it. Whenever we dehumanize another person by calling names viscerally, by attacking them, by allowing a deep-seated resentment to be pointed at them, even if it doesn't manifest itself in words or actions externally, Jesus says we are beginning to be eaten up from the inside out. And Jesus is just getting warmed up. He then moves in verses 27 through 30 to that very embarrassing topic of lust. I remember a number of years ago as I was preaching a sermon somewhere around this topic and talking about how Jesus was getting into the details of our lives with some of his teaching. And I had a retired elderly, elderly member come through the receiving line after the service and he kind of scowled at me but had a wink in his eye. He said, preacher, that was a meddling sermon. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Is there any of us that have not experienced the temptation to anger or lust in the last seven days? Probably not. Jesus says, well, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He continues, You've heard it said, does he continue? He does not continue. He's going to stop right there. It's extreme from Jesus to use exaggerative, hyperbolic language to talk about the extent to which we should go to keep ourselves from sinning. If I cause you to sin, rip it out. I don't think Jesus is meaning us to take him literally. I think what he's saying is there's nothing wrong with admiring someone's beauty. There's not. There's nothing wrong with feeling attracted to someone physically. Not, absolutely not. But when you intently gaze, and his word here in the Greek is not to notice. It is to gaze consumingly at someone lustfully. Then he says we're already committing adultery in our own hearts. We all know it's wrong to commit adultery, to break that covenant and dishonor the relationship. But Jesus Man, what a higher bar to say, hey, by the way, it's the thought that counts here. Friends, I think you know the enemy's not going to show up one morning, whisper in your ear, you know, have you ever thought about having an affair? That really would spice things. I mean, it's what a sense of adventure, you know, kind of you know, sneaking around and hiding things. Man, what a great thing to do. And you say, wonderful, that's fantastic, that's exactly what I need in my life. I'm going to pencil into my calendar, try to find a partner. And... No. 
That's not where it starts. It starts with, man, it makes me feel good when that coworker laughs at my jokes. I notice how much they smile at me. Or they really compliment me on the job that I'm doing or the way that I'm appearing. It's in a professional way, and if it makes me feel good, what's the harm? Or, to target it specifically at lust, what's the actual harm in having either a still frame or video image, which is not an actual other human being in front of me, and just allowing my imagination to run wild just for a little bit? Jesus seems to say, that in doing so, we rob ourselves of seeing the image of God in another person. That the gift of sexual expression is meant to be shared with patience and gentleness and understanding and trust, not reduced to something that can just simply gratify the most base of human desires. It was a few years ago that I was asked to coffee with a young adult father. And I will tell you, as a pastor, you sometimes get... um, It's really an honor to be invited uh, into spaces in people's lives where they trust you with things that make them feel very vulnerable. And I've walked with some individuals and families through the pain of infidelity and have seen at times how God can restore and heal families and, and marriages. That was not one of these instances. This young father sat across me at a coffee table and said, I'm here really to kind of ask you for your prayer and to really kind of let you know something I've been struggling with. Father of two in the first decade of his marriage. And he shared with me that he had given in to some temptations in the past year and was viewing some things that he felt guilty about. But his prayer was that he would learn to respond to a conviction he had just started to feel because he said to me something to this effect, I know that when I do this, I knew that it was wrong, but when I started to think about how that would impact my wife if she learned about it, man, it, it broke my heart. She is such a good mother to our kids, and she is an incredible partner to me as a spouse. And I could not bear the thought of letting her think that I was replacing her with somebody else's image. And he said, would you please pray for me? I mean like right now. And we walked across the street out of a coffee shop into a public park on a weekday morning that was sparsely inhabited and we sat at a picnic table and I prayed for him. And I prayed for me that we would be the men of integrity that we want our spouses to believe we are and that we want our children to be able to look up to. Jesus is getting into the nitty gritty. And what he's saying is that the devil will be in the details, but the devil doesn't have to be. That it is possible in this life to have the Holy Spirit so present in day-to-day interactions that when that temptation presents itself, that we can say, no, and resist. The power of the Holy Spirit isn't just in forgiving us when we sin, but empowering us to recognize the temptation and resist it so that forgiveness isn't ever necessary. You hear that? There are future mistakes in your life that are possible that can be totally avoided if we listen to the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin can be recognized and resisted at the origin of impulse rather than regretfully repented of at the hindsight 
of regret. My wife, who's in our service today, a number of years ago, she had a different job than what she has now. And those of you that haven't met my wife, and we have a lot of newer folks in our church, I hope you will, because people always think a lot better of me when they meet her. Um, So it's totally self-serving. But um, she's worked a lot, she will tell you, in the last decade of her life on her own spiritual formation, reading books, having a um, spiritual mentor that she went to regularly and met with, and inviting people to hold her accountable and so on. And then this job that she had, she found herself as a speech-language pathologist who specialized in teaching children who were deaf or hard of hearing oral communication as a listening and spoken language specialist. She was invited to help kind of pilot a new program in an institution that had never had anything like that before. It was her, another teacher, and a classroom assistant that made up the small department. Well, what they were asked to do was in some ways totally different from and maybe even counter to what the larger vision and work of the institution had been historically about. So appropriately in with how they felt, they were banished to a building on the back of the property away from everybody else in the organization. It seemed like pretty soon after they began their work serving different kinds of children, that when they would make a request for funding for a certain kind of curriculum, or for a piece of hardware, or could we make this adjustment, we think it would, it seemed like every decision was met with delay, with dismissiveness, with funds being redirected over here, and it just began to be a pattern that made the three of them feel like their work was not truly part of the organization, that it wasn't valued the way that they wanted it to be. Cameron will admit to you, I asked her permission to share this story because we live together and I didn't want to tell the story and then have to face being called an idiot. <laughs> so she shared with her co-workers. They began to form a sense of camaraderie and almost solidarity of us against the institution. We don't understand why they would ask us to do this work and then make it difficult for us in accomplishing that work. And it went on for months and months. And one day she got, after work had ended, she got a text message from the other teacher in her class. I can't believe they're doing this. Check your email. So Cameron checked her email, and there, from the director of the program, a note. Sorry, guys, but the new printer copier that we gave you down in your building is going to have to be repurposed for another department, which meant they were going to then have to walk 700 yards round trip to make a copy of a piece of paper. That in itself, probably not a big deal, but when it's the thousandth paper cut, they were upset. They were frustrated, and it formed. There's just a synergy that began to develop as they talked about it with each other, and they found solace and sympathy with one another, and I don't understand why they would do this. Can you believe that they're... Just so happened that at that time, our family was hosting a young adult Bible study in our living room in another, another community. In that living room, we were studying Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is teaching about being salt and light in the world. And Cameron admitted, you know, I'm feeling a little bit gross that we've allowed ourselves to get so mad, even though we're justified in how we feel, like we're not really being salt and light. So she assembled her other two co-workers the next day. They're believers, persons of faith. And she said, you know, I'd, I really think that we, uh, we can do better than what we've been doing. And while we can't control the decisions of the administration, what we can control is how much we indulge in gossip, 
and how much we are willing to put targets on their back and say bad things about them and be disgusted with them. So every time that they do something that makes us angry, let's try to return blessing in place of, and let's accept that, and let's try to have a good attitude about it. The other two agreed that that was a noble endeavor, and they decided to hold one another accountable and began creating a culture of, if I speak out a negative word, I give you permission to call me on it. And together they began to just totally lift their perspective. The residual effect of that in that work environment was not only did they lose some of that toxicity which was present in the three-person group, but their relationships with the figurehead and other members of the administration drastically improved without the administration knowing anything about it. Why? They weren't committing murder, but they refused to allow those tiny seeds of resentment to find fertile soil in their souls to grow to actions and words of violence. I want to encourage you today. This is not a message to guilt anybody about anything. The fact is that we know these realities are part of our lives. My encouragement to you is to recognize that it doesn't start at the moment of the regret of transgression. It starts way back at temptation and the details, and the Holy Spirit can be there just as much as the temptation. I want to pray for us this morning and leave a couple of pauses. If there's anything you want to whisper quietly to our God, let's pray. Gracious God, you know all, you hear all, you see all. And even though we might like to think we do, we have no secrets from you. God, sometimes things happen in our lives as a result of the actions of others, and rightfully so, it angers us. But we hear in your word that there is the possibility that we can be released from the fiery destruction of anger in us. And so right now, we name those people that we are angry at, ask for your forgiveness, and Lord, we plead that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to help us release that bitterness toward them right now. God, we also pray that you would free us from the shame and embarrassment of those times in our lives when we have indulged in lustful thoughts. And we don't ask for your forgiveness, Lord, because you are a prudish judge. We ask for your redemption so that the destructive power of sin will not destroy us in the way that we view other people. And so we confess to you now those times and places when we have lusted and we ask for your healing forgiveness as we pray. And Lord God, as we conclude our communion liturgy in those powerful words, those promises from 1 John 1, 9, we take hope in the reality that if we will confess our sins, you will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the people of God say, Amen. The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. 
We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church.